We're going to consider the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation in their entirety. The time period is 95 AD or so. The place is a rocky strip of an island called Patmos. The man, John the Apostle, the last living of the original 12, John has been exiled for what he says in verse 9 of chapter 1 was the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. While exiled, John receives instructions from Jesus to write seven letters to seven churches that are specifically in a region referred to as Asia. Asia, not far east as we might think of it today. Okay, this was a Roman province, Asia Minor, sometimes referred to as Asia the Less. And in verse 11 of chapter 1, Jesus mentions by name the seven churches that he's going to be addressing. They are the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Certain scholars have suggested that these seven letters follow a particular order and that the order of these letters points to, in a prophetic sense, a broad explanation of all of church history, all the way from Jesus' ascension until his ultimate return. Cyrus Schofield, famous for the Schofield Bible. He wrote this, These messages, by their very terms, go beyond the local assemblies mentioned. The letters have a prophetic purpose disclosing seven phases of church history. Joseph Seiss summed it up this way, The churches of all time are comprehended in the seven. Now, if these seven churches present to us a panoramic view, a prophetic picture of all of church history, I'll say this, that is their secondary significance. The primary, first and foremost, what we see here are seven literal letters written to seven literal churches of John's day. But still, this is kind of a fascinating concept, and so I want to take some time talking about it this morning. I'm just going to read each of these letters, and then I'm going to stop and offer some comments. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 2, Jesus says this, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars." And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So the first church we have described here is the church of Ephesus. Most scholars agree that, again, if taking these as a snapshot of all of church history, that the church of Ephesus refers to the post-apostolic church age, that time frame immediately following the time of the first apostles. So, it's interesting for us to consider, what kind of church was it? 
immediately following the ascension of Jesus. What did it look like? First of all, I think we can gather that it was a hard-working church. Jesus says in verse 2, I know your works, your labor, your patience. He says in verse 3, you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Historically speaking, the post-apostolic period of church history was a time when people were extremely committed and sold out, we might say, for the cause of Christ. It was a hard-working church, but it was also a pure church. Jesus says there in verse 2, notice this. He says, you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. When you go back and study this period of church history, you will find all kinds of writings that were popping up and being circulated around the churches in an attempt to protect the church from false teachers. However, it was also a church that was in danger of losing relationship with Jesus. Note what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. One of the saddest aspects of church history is to observe how quickly the church moved away from a gospel of grace and started drifting back towards works. It happened very quickly. The post-apostolic church was a hard-working church and taught a very strong morality. But in doing so, the emphasis became on personal performance rather than the grace of God. This is why Jesus was so concerned about this loss of relationship with him. He says, you've left your first love. He says in verse 5, go back and do what you were doing in the beginning. He essentially says, come back to grace. Now, the next church age was the church of Smyrna, or the persecuted church. Let's read verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. Jesus says, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt, by the second death. Again, in taking a look at these churches historically, the letter to the church in Smyrna describes a period of church history where the church suffered tremendously. Terrible persecution under the hand of the Roman Empire. This was a time when Christians would have been well acquainted with the idea of death and martyrdom. This is why Jesus promises them life. There at the end of verse 10, he says, Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. When you examine the writings from this age, Roman historian Tacitus, for instance, you discover that these were the days when Caesar Nero was doing things like rolling Christians in tar 
impaling them on posts and lighting them on fire while he rode his chariot around his gardens, naked, by the way. This was a time when men, women, and children were sewn inside dead animal skins and thrown into arenas to be torn apart by hungry lions. All to the cheers of a bloodthirsty crowd, by the way. It was brutal. But incredibly, the church not only survived during this period, it prospered. This was a time when one Christian author of that day said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Onlookers would see the persecution that Christians were enduring, and they were absolutely convinced that there was something real to their faith in Christ. It's interesting, when you look at Jesus' words to this church, there's no negative comments made. In most of these letters to the churches, there's something that Jesus will point out, some kind of critique. But to this church, nothing negative. It's not that they were a perfect church, but it's almost like they had enough on their minds, right? Now, this period of church history lasted roughly until about 315 A.D. Just at the end of this period of church history, two amazing things happened. We'll call this next section the Pergamus Church Age, okay? Or the Church of the Roman Emperors. Look what Jesus says, starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamus write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against you with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. By the end of the third and beginning of the fourth century, quite honestly, it looked as though Christianity was going to be extinguished. The toughest of all the Roman emperors had brought some of the most severe persecution against the church. One of the greatest persecutors of the church was a Roman emperor by the name of Galerius. In 303 AD, he launched one of the worst campaigns against the church. Churches were burned, scriptures were taken and destroyed. Christian services were prohibited. But then two amazing things happened. Just before he died, on his deathbed, in fact, Galerius issued what was called the Edict of Toleration. He didn't admit that what he had done was wrong to Christians, but he did admit that the determination and tenacity of Christians in the faith of persecution had won him over. And he decided that for the good of the Roman Empire, they should tolerate Christianity, and he gave an official established toleration. 
Absolutely amazing. Now, the second amazing thing that happened was the conversion of a young Roman general named Constantine. In the year 312 AD, Constantine, who would become a Roman emperor, converted to Christianity. And he did what he could to help make Christianity the official religion of Rome. Constantine granted freedom and official status to Christians. Government salaries were paid to bishops and preachers. Sundays were officially recognized as the day of rest in a very short period of time. Christians went from being persecuted to very privileged. And suddenly, when Christianity became the favored religion of Rome, suddenly everybody wanted to be a Christian. Why? For political and financial gain. And it corrupted the church. It's interesting, the name Pergamus in verse 12, it actually means objectionable marriage. This was a time when the church essentially became married to the government. There was no separation between church and state. It's interesting then that Jesus introduces himself to this church as saying, he who has the sharp two-edged sword. There was this new alliance that existed between the church and the government, and it was as if Jesus was saying, that needs to be cut off. Something else that corrupted the church during this time, note the reference in verse 14 to idols and sexual immorality. In order to make Christianity more appealing to the masses, Constantine did something interesting. He blended certain elements of Christianity with certain elements of popular Roman customs and traditions of that day, many of which stem from pagan religions. For example, the resurrection of Jesus was blended with the Feast of Ishtar. Ishtar is where we get our English word Easter. So the idea of the Easter egg, that's because Ishtar was a fertility goddess and the egg was the symbol of fertility. Ever thought about why we celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th? There, the, the Bible never says to us that Jesus was born on December 25th. It was during Constantine's reign when the official declared birth of Christ would be celebrated on December 25th. And according to historians, listen to this, this date was probably chosen because of the winter solstice and the pagan Roman festivals Saturnalia and Deis Natalis Solis Invicti, which was a Roman sun god, which took place in December around this date. There was also a very popular pagan religion in Rome that had its roots all the way back in mother goddess worship from Babylon, which was the worship of Semiramis, the mother goddess, who, by the way, was married to Nimrod, who erected the Tower of Babel. According to that pagan religion, she had a child supposedly by immaculate conception. So Constantine said, how can we make the elements of Christianity more accessible? I know, we'll replace Semiramis and Tammuz, which was her son supposedly born by immaculate conception. We'll replace Semiramis and Tammuz with Mary and Jesus. And that's where you get the whole idea of the veneration of Mary. It goes all the way back to this time. So it was during this time that the church began to have this objectionable marriage through the marriage of church and state. 
and it paved the way for the next church age, the Thyatiran church age. Things got even worse. This would refer to the medieval Roman Catholic church period. But before we read these next few verses, what I do want to point out to you, just you'll note this with me, none of these first three churches that we've read about, none of them have mentioned the return of Christ. But each of the last four of the seven churches all talk about the return of Jesus. I believe that indicates that there will be elements of these last four churches that will continue on in the world until Jesus comes back. If you think about it, the first three church ages have pretty much passed away, right? We really don't see a post-apostolic church anymore, uh, even though in some parts of the world the church is persecuted by and large, the church is not persecuted as a whole from the government. We don't have emperors over the church anymore. But certain elements of the medieval Roman Catholic church remain in the world today. Let's start reading in verse 18. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. Also, as I have received from my Father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, it's important to point out that in the period of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, as with the church in Thyatira, they did show some remarkable examples of, as verse 19 puts it, love, service, faith, and patience. You, know, you think back, for instance, to during this time period, the monastic movement, which church history, you look at, it's an amazing thing. You think of all the beautiful cathedrals around the world that were built during this period of church history. But, like the church in Thyatira, the medieval Roman Catholic Church was corrupted by a woman. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to teach and beguile my servants. Who was the woman that the medieval Catholic Church followed? Curiously enough, it was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Or more properly, I suppose we should say this. It was the Roman Catholic idea of Mary, not the Mary of the Bible. 
The medieval Roman Catholic Church was also filled with sexual immorality and idolatry, both of them mentioned in verse 20. A pope from this period of church history, known as Pius II, he was elected to be pope, or selected to be pope at the age of 53, even though his sexual immorality was widely known throughout the church. He fathered at least two children, had many mistresses, and liked to brag about his ability to seduce women. He said his sexual appetite was an old bad habit. He once said, I can't be wiser than Solomon or more godly than David. It was also during this period of church history that the veneration of saints began. In 1462, Pius II gave a huge celebration for what he believed the skull of the Apostle Andrew to be coming to Rome. And when they brought the skull into the church, Pius II fell on his face and thanked the skull for coming out of the grave. Allow me to read to you the words of another pope from during this time period. Pope Gregory VII. This is a paraphrased decree that he made on March 7th in the year 1080. It'll give you an idea of the kind of political aspiration and arrogance that, of the popes during this time. He said that the pope alone could write what he called universal truth, that the pope alone could depose or reinstate bishops without taking counsel from anyone, that the pope alone could use the imperial insignia, the name of the pope alone shall be spoken in the churches that this is the only name in the world. The Pope has the power to depose emperors. No chapter and no word shall be considered God's word without the Pope's authority. No one can judge the Pope. The Roman Catholic Church has never erred, nor will it ever err throughout all eternity, the Scripture bearing witness. He who is not at peace with the Roman Catholic Church shall not be considered Christian. This was the kind of corruption that was going on within the Roman Catholic Church during this period of church history. The whole thing became a political game. The church had become obsessed with power. There was a constant struggle between the pope and kings to see who would dominate the political arena. And honestly, the next period of church history didn't get much better. You see a picture there in the church of Sardis, uh, chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names in Sardis, or even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think what you see here is a picture of the church age where we think of institutional Protestantism. Institutional Protestantism started with Martin Luther when he nailed his 95 statements 
to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. That event kicked off what we think of as the Great Reformation. And it was a time of tremendous reform. Institutional Protestantism made necessary and great changes during this time. But when you go back and study church history, it failed to bring real revival to the church. Look at what Jesus says in verse 1. He says, I know your works, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. From a historical perspective, the Protestant Reformation changed ideas. It didn't do a lot to change lives. In many ways, churches were no longer Catholic. Now they were Protestant, but they were still dead. And look, don't just take my word for it. One indication of this very truth are the surviving copies of the pastoral visitation records of the Lutheran church recorded during the life of Martin Luther. In October 1525, Martin Luther wrote to the Duke and said, Churches everywhere are in a terrible state of disrepair. No one pays for their upkeep or fulfills his obligation, and the common man shows so little respect to his preacher and pastor that unless your majesty will agree to undertake a great house cleaning, God's word and divine service will soon vanish from the earth. What I'm trying to convey here is that institutional Protestantism made many great changes. The church today owes so much to the Protestant Reformation. But what we need to recognize is that they didn't go far enough, right? The reformers didn't take their biblical understanding far enough. Note what Jesus says to the church in Sardis in verse 2. He says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect. Perfect not in the sense of flawless, but perfect in the sense of being complete. That's why Jesus tells them, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. In other words, keep going. Follow it through. For example, under the Protestant Reformation, there was still an idea of a state church or a believer's church. We talked about the idea during the, the period of history of the Roman, you know, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. During the church of Luther's day, the church was every bit as much wedded to the government. That's why there was still an institutional state church. The Protestant reformers persecuted and killed anyone who didn't agree with them. When it came to things like baptism, when it came to their ideas of eschatology and end times. So in other words, if we took this church right here and transported it back to 1523 Germany in the wake of the Protestant Reformation, many people in here, myself included, would, would be under the threat of persecution for what we believe about the end times or what we believe about baptism. So again, understand what I'm saying. The Reformation did amazing good. And it's hard to be critical when, the, when there's been good. But even Jesus himself in these letters will point out the good stuff and then he'll say, nevertheless, it's a word that means in spite of all that. Now, Come to the last two churches, right? You have the church in Philadelphia and the church in Laodicea. Let's read verse 7 of chapter 3. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens, I know your works. 
See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. From a church history standpoint, I think what you see in the church of Philadelphia is the missionary and evangelical church that was birthed in the 18th century. During that time period, the church was given and used a tremendous open door to spread the gospel all over the world. It started in the 1700s with men like William Carey, who who really, in a lot of ways, birthed what we think of as the modern missions movement. These were people who were passionate about taking the gospel to places like Africa and India and the South Seas Island. It's interesting Notice how in verse 8, Jesus says of this church, you have a little strength. And it's interesting to study up to this period of church history and look at it and see how God raised up really simple people to be used amazingly. And it brought the revival that institutional Protestantism failed to bring. Jesus also makes it clear, note this with me, in verse 10, that this church will survive through the Great Tribulation. He says this. Actually, I shouldn't say they'll survive through the Great Tribulation. They won't have to go through the Great Tribulation. Look in verse 10. Jesus says, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation. The word from there literally means out of. I will keep you out of the hour of tribulation, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Like I said earlier, I believe these last four churches that we're looking at will continue until the end of the age. There are elements of the Roman Catholic Church still in the world today. There are elements of institutional Protestantism still in the world today. There's elements of the missionary and evangelical church still in the world today that began sometime in the 18th century. But sadly... There's also elements of the last church that's described for us here, the Laodicean church or the compromising church of the last time or the end times. It's described in verse 14. Jesus says this, And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot, I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed. 
that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and you anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. As I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that's kind of depressing, isn't it? That a, a church would be described this way by Jesus. Lukewarm, not hot, not cold, compromising. You know, always trying to find that middle ground, really, of having one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. This is the last church movement that we will see right before the Lord returns. And and when I say right before the Lord returns, I say that very intentionally. If you notice something, not only does Jesus make reference to his return in the last four of these churches that we talked about, the language he uses is increasingly emphatic. For instance, verse 25 of chapter 2, Jesus said this, Hold fast what you have till I come. In verse 3 of chapter 3, he says, If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. In verse 11 of chapter 3, he says, Behold, I come quickly. And here in verse 20 of chapter 3, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, if you scrunch all those statements together, here's how it reads. Hold fast what you have till I come. If you'll not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. Behold, I come quickly. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's like the Holy Spirit sending text messages. I'm on my way. I'm getting closer. Almost there. Just outside. There's just this increasing urgency to the statements surrounding the second coming of Christ. I think one of the most exciting things to me is that once we see elements of all four of these last churches... I think we can know we are getting ready to see Jesus come back. Do we see elements of the medieval Roman Catholic Church in the world? Yes. Do we see elements of institutional Protestantism? Yes. Do we see elements of the missionary and evangelical movement? Yes. Do we see elements of a lukewarm, compromising church in the world today? Yes. Look in verse 17. Jesus says, Because you say... I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I think one of the things that will characterize this compromising church of the end times is an obsession with comfort and materialism. And when you look around at the church, you see all kinds of false doctrines that have crept in. The so-called word of faith movement that is absolutely obsessed with material gain, but no passion for Jesus. The church today is becoming bogged down more and more with this mentality. I'm fine. I'm rich. Jesus says, no, you're poor. Jesus says, you have nothing. It's so much more important that we gain Jesus' perspective on how we're doing than simply adhering to our own perspective on how we're doing. Jesus says to them, essentially, come back to me. 
Verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, white garments, anoint your eyes with eye salve. Jesus actually says this, I am standing at the door and knocking. But sadly, he's pictured on the outside. So here's a church gathering. The church has gotten together, right? They're singing songs and they're studying the word of God, but Jesus is on the outside knocking and nobody knows it. That's sobering. Jesus is so close. Just wanting to come in and have real intimate fellowship with them. In fact, they're promised great reward in verse 21. He says to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's an incredible reward. If they'll simply repent and battle through the compromise, they'll receive that reward. Here's the question. Which church are you a member of? Are you a member of the church of Ephesus? Man, you're hardworking. You can't bear those who are evil, but you've left your first love. Are you a member of the church in Sardis? Oh, you're called a Christian. You have a name that you're alive, but inside... You're spiritually dead. Are you a member of the church in Laodicea? Not hot, not cold. Eh, just kind of there, lukewarm. Are you a member of the church in Philadelphia? Jesus has set before you an open door. You're faithful to take that opportunity. I believe the Holy Spirit reveals to us a pattern in these letters, a picture of all of church history. Again, I would tell you straight up, I think that's the secondary significance of this passage. I think the primary purpose of these passages is for us to look at what Jesus says to his church and for us as the church today to consider where are we at.